All right, if you have a Bible, turn to Luke chapter 19 in it. Luke chapter 19. We come to the passage of Zacchaeus. As the kid's song tells us, he was a wee little man. Many of us who grew up in church know that kid's song of Zacchaeus, a wee little man. The song tells the story fairly well, but what, is, what does this story mean? What does the story teach us? That Jesus loves little guys? That Jesus has a deep voice? Because you get to that part where, you know, Zacchaeus, you come down. You have to put it in that voice. Of course, God would talk like that. I think that we think this is a good children's story, a good Sunday school story. And our kids like the story in part because they can relate to climbing trees and because Zacchaeus is little. Actually, what we'll see, though, is the irony of this story is that Zacchaeus isn't a child. He's a man, and yet he's childlike in his pursuit to see Jesus. It's a story of a little man, yes, but a story about a big change. Chapter 19, starting in verse 1, Luke tells us this. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through, and there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was and was unable because of the crowd, for he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see him, for he was about to pass through that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. And he hurried and came down and received him gladly. When they saw it, they all began to grumble, saying, He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. Jesus said to him, Today, salvation has come to this house, because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Well, the story begins by introducing this guy, Zacchaeus, as a chief tax collector who was very rich. Now, we've talked before about what tax collector means in the the first century, but at the risk of being redundant, let me repeat that. Let me talk about that again. In first century times, tax collectors were hated above any other category or class or kind of people in that society. They were often Jews, but they were thought to be traitors by their fellow Jews because they're essentially working for the Roman government. And not just working for the Roman government, they are funding the Roman government. They're serving the Roman occupation of their land. They are funding the brutal violent Roman army. Instead of resisting that occupation, hating that occupation, and praying against that occupation, Zacchaeus is one who's helping to fund it and funding it by being dishonest. They were known for being famously corrupt, taking extra off the top. In fact, that's how they would get their salary, their, their income, The Roman system was that they wouldn't get paid by the Romans themselves. It was expected that they would charge more from those they were taxing and then take whatever they thought was necessary for themselves from the top. 
They were also known for their wild, extravagant living, known for parties and drunkenness and gluttony as they got together with other tax collectors. So there's absolutely no contemporary equivalent to how this group of people was hated in their society. I've said before, maybe the closest thing I can think of to it is maybe someone who's the head of a a drug cartel. You know, there's violence there, there's cheating there, there's harm to the society, harm to community there. But Zacchaeus isn't just a tax collector. It says he's a chief tax collector. It means he's the boss of bad guys. He's been good enough at tax collecting himself that he's become a mentor to other tax collectors, a boss of the tax collectors in Jericho. Probably that big of a region is what he's in charge of. And his job now is made a bit easy as he just takes some from those who are doing the tax collecting. He doesn't tax collect himself. And it even means that he's probably more lucrative. It's, it's more well paid than just being a tax collector to be a chief tax collector. He even took bribes from those who wanted to future, in the future be tax collectors. And so he's corrupt. He's skimming off the top. He's a part of this corrupt system It's hurting his people, and he doesn't seem to care about it. It seems like there's no hope for a guy like this. And on top of that, he's short. (laughs) So what it says in verse 3, he's short in stature, and that leads to the first thing for us to see, this first lesson, gaining perspective. Gaining perspective. Zacchaeus climbed a tree to gain perspective. He wants to see Jesus, but apparently everyone else is head and shoulders above him. He can only see backs. Everyone's been talking about Jesus. He's no doubt already heard about Jesus, his teaching and his miracles, and a crowd is following Jesus to see what he's going to do, to hear what he's going to say. Remember back from Good Friday, back when we were looking at the later chapters of Luke, closer to the crucifixion, Remember, there's that crowd finally at that Good Friday day where they're, uh, not Good Friday, on, uh, on the Wednesday before, Palm Sunday, they're, they're praising him, saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, this is the king. That crowd is building. You see it building here. In chapter 19, the crowd is starting to, uh, to grow with Jesus as he goes into Jerusalem, as they all go into Jerusalem for the Passover. Now, part of... Zacchaeus' desire to see Jesus might just be curiosity about what he looks like. In verse 3, he wants to see who Jesus was. That's the way it's put. It might just be that he wants to get a glimpse of what he looks like. I mean, think about in these days, there isn't anything visual in the media or the news. How do you know what the Berlin Wall looks like? Well, you've seen it in the TV and the newspaper, maybe online. How do you know what Osama bin Laden looks like? Well, you've seen it in the media. In those days, they would hear about news, they would hear about events, they'd hear about people, but they wouldn't have the visual that's so part of our communication and dissemination of news. So they've heard about this Jesus, but they haven't seen him. They want to see him. But it's more than just curiosity. We know that from the rest of the story. He's interested in Jesus. He has questions about Jesus. He's almost believing, you could say. He's what we might call a seeker. Zacchaeus is interested to see what Jesus is like and maybe to find out if these things are true. But running and tree climbing 
These are childlike. Running is childlike in this culture. Now, in our culture, we run for exercise. We, we run because we think we should be athletic in our culture. In those days, grown men didn't run. Remember that from Luke 15? The father of the prodigal son. We saw as the father saw his son coming from far away, he took off running towards his son. And we said back then, that was spectacular because it's undignified for grown men to run in those days. They'd have to pick up their robe around their waist, show their briefs or something underneath, whatever's underneath, I don't know. But they would run with their robe hiked up in dignified Wealthy men didn't run, much less climb a tree. You don't climb a tree in these days. Well, even today, guys, when's the last time you climbed a tree? You know, when's the last time you climbed a tree because you were too short to see? You know, if you're with your buddy in a crowd and you're shorter than him and he says, oh, do you want me to pick you up and put you on my shoulders? You'd say, do you want a fat lip? (laughs) Right? I mean, no, I I don't want you to pick me up and put me on my shoulders. Here's an inside from a short guy. Short guys do not like to show off their shortness or show that their shortness is some kind of limitation. So I have shelves in my office, books higher than I can reach. I usually close the door before I go jumping for one. You know, I... (laughs) You know, it just doesn't look very cool when people pass by and you're trying to, to jump six inches off the ground to, to grab a book. They come in usually when they see me do that and say, oh, can I get that for you? <laughs> yeah. I, I was really short when I was younger, when I was in grade school, like off the charts short. And I mean that literally. You, you know, you go to the doctor and they do the chart for your growth and, you know, most of you people have been in the chart. I remember for years the doctor putting another piece of paper below the chart and saying, you're somewhere down here. I remember thinking, if I could just graduate to the actual piece of paper that everyone else uses. That's how short I was. I remember times being, you know, where the lunchbox is, lunchbox is up high here in the locker. So this is maybe, you know, first grade or something like that. And they, of course, make these lockers so that first graders can actually reach their lunchbox. I couldn't. I'd have to ask a friend, can you get that for me? I remember one day just bursting into tears because I, I couldn't get my lunchbox. And the teacher said, didn't Joe say he would get, his, get your lunchbox for you? Yeah, but I hate asking. I, you know, you just feel awkward and weird. And Zacchaeus goes out on a limb here. Literally. He climbs a tree. He goes out on a limb here to see Jesus Dignified adults don't get on someone's shoulders. They don't climb trees. In this culture, they don't run. But Zacchaeus does all these childlike things in order to see Jesus, in order to gain perspective. So you're not a Christian. Maybe you need to take that next step. Climb a tree. Go out on a limb to see Jesus. What does it mean for you? This step before conversion, before you're convinced that Jesus is the Savior and he's your hope, maybe you need to start to take a risk, to be careless about what others might think. 
You know, they might think that your pursuit of Jesus, your interest in Jesus is silly. It's childlike. Maybe it means that your spouse will see you, your unbelieving spouse will see you reading a Bible and they'll snicker. Go out on a limb. Go looking for Jesus. This is where we go looking for Jesus these days. We go in the Bible. Maybe it means coming to church like this to try to gain perspective about who Jesus is, what he's up to, what he says. Maybe climbing a tree for you means asking a Christian friend your questions. Maybe he can't answer all of them, but he can answer some of them. Go out on a limb and ask him. Or maybe it means coming up front today after the service to ask questions of some of our leaders. I'll mention that later in the service again. We have leaders up front that are here to answer questions or to pray with you. That's kind of awkward to go up front and say, hey, I'm not a Christian. Do you have a sec? But do it. Go out on a limb like Zacchaeus did. You've heard about Jesus. Isn't it time to start seeing him for yourself? Zacchaeus is childlike. Like Jesus talked about in the previous chapter. Remember that? Verses 15 to 17, he says there, you have to be like a little child to enter the kingdom of heaven. That's exactly what Zacchaeus is doing here. He's being willing to be like a little child who climbs a tree and runs ahead of the crowd so that he can see Jesus. Tim Keller is a pastor in New York and Manhattan. Many of you know him from his books or from his speaking ministry. Over and over, Keller says that the imagination that's in so many of our fairy tales, so like when you, you, know, you think of um, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis, and you think of how uh, pro-imagination it is, right? The kids are supposed to give in to their imagination. They're supposed to pursue their imagination. Imagination's a good thing in so many of these fairy tales. And Keller loves to say that that's like faith. We're believing that there's another world out there, that someone from another world came into our world, and there's an answer to the problem that's before us. And Jesus isn't just another one of the fairy tales. He's the essence and the reality to which all these fairy tales point. But imagination in those fairy tales is kind of like faith. It's kind of childlike. Zacchaeus shows here that he ignores the crowd in order to see Jesus, ignoring what others might say or think. And he sees Jesus. It takes thought, it takes effort, it takes even a strategy for him to start to see Jesus. But you can see here in the end of the story that it's paramount that he goes to see Jesus. That's gaining perspective. The second thing to see is receiving Jesus. Zacchaeus shows us how to receive Jesus. But notice how Jesus initiates in this story. It wasn't Zacchaeus' tree climbing. It wasn't later on in the story Zacchaeus giving away half of his possessions that earned Jesus' interest in Zacchaeus. In fact, in verse 5, it's subtle, but you can see it. It says, when Jesus came to the place, he looked up. It doesn't say Jesus saw Zacchaeus from far away and went in that direction. This is what we might call a divine appointment, although that's overused today because everything is a divine appointment if God is sovereign. But you can see what we mean by that here, that this this is a special assignment. This is how he's converted. Jesus calls Zacchaeus by name, not because he has met him before, 
Not because he asked someone on the way, who's that short guy in the tree? But because this is a divine appointment. And he tells Zacchaeus to come down. He, he invites himself into Zacchaeus' house. In modern evangelicalism, we talk a lot about how you invite Jesus into your heart. There's a sense in which that's true. But here is another side of the coin. Jesus invites himself into Zacchaeus' life, into Zacchaeus' house. In fact, all the words used for Jesus' visit to Zacchaeus' house suggest that this wasn't a meal. This is, this is bed and breakfast. This is room and board. This is staying for a weekend or a few days or something. In, in verse 5, stay at your house, that word. Or verse 6, received him. Or in verse 7, he's a guest. These all imply something more than a meal. This is, this is several days. Isn't it such a turning point in the story when Jesus gets personal? And that's the way it works for any of us. When any of us believe, when we've come to believe, it goes something like this. We climb a tree. We go out on a limb to see Jesus. We want to see the real Jesus. And then at some point, he gets personal with us. It's almost as if he calls your name. It's almost as if he invites himself into your life. It's one thing to theoretically discuss whether Jesus was real. Another thing to even come to believe that he is real and he died on the cross. It's another thing to, to think that he died for you. That he died in your place. That your sins were paid for upon the cross. Zacchaeus has this personal encounter with Jesus. It's not theoretical anymore. It's not just seeing him. Now Jesus is talking to him. And Jesus invited himself into his home, and not just his home, again, his life. And Zacchaeus received that. It says, verse 6, quickly he came down the tree, and happily he received him. The crowd, of course, though, is enraged that Jesus would share meal and life with someone who's a sinner, a famous sinner. A professional sinner. Such a public, consistent sinner like Zacchaeus. And we've seen that theme before in this book of Luke. We've seen tax collectors with Jesus. We've seen prostitutes with Jesus. We've seen gluttons and drunkards with Jesus. He's a friend of sinners, it says again and again. He came for sinners. Sinners just like Zacchaeus. That's what it says in verse 10. Something of the thesis statement of Jesus' mission. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. Man, maybe you want to circle seek and save. Two S words that really describe Jesus' mission. You see how he's seeking Zacchaeus here? He's on a mission to seek sinners just like Zacchaeus. He seeks it's not that we go looking for him. It's really that he goes looking for us. It's not that we loved him first, according to 1 John. It's that he first loved us. And he came to save. Save sinners like Zacchaeus and like me. He saved us with the cross by dying in the place of those sinners. That's why sinners have hope. Because it's not based on their goodness. It's not based on something they do before Jesus comes to their house. 
The cross is the answer where Jesus died in the place to take the punishment that we deserved and to give the righteousness that we couldn't earn. That's why it's so central in these later chapters especially why Jesus keeps emphasizing this thing of going to the cross and going to the cross and going to the cross. That's his mission, to seek and save the lost specifically by dying in their place. Well, gaining perspective, receiving Jesus, and now third, transforming identity and ideals. Zacchaeus shows us how to transform our identity and our ideals. It's important to note that Luke's account here probably skips some details of the story. And that's okay, right? Anytime you're telling a story, you probably skip some details. Some of you are better, that, uh, better at that than others at skipping details in the story. Some of you love every flowery, inch-by-inch detail. Well, Luke doesn't. Luke's okay with saying, here are the headlines. And so he describes Zacchaeus before and after, not the transition so much. So look at verse 7 and verse 8 and see the big gap between them. In verse 7, the crowd is mad that Jesus goes to the house of someone who's such a sinner. Next verse. Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I'll give to the poor. And if I defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. Now, this doesn't mean that Zacchaeus is saved because he's willing to give a significant part of his money away. It's because he's saved that he's willing to give a significant part of his money away. There's no description of the gospel here between verse 7 and verse 8. There's no account of Zacchaeus' conversion like there is in Acts 16, the Philippian jailer. You know, he says, what must I do to be saved? And they say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Well, this, this account here skips some of that stuff and it gets right to the fruit of his conversion. The conversion itself is, a, is skipped over a little bit. That's okay. It shows us his need. It shows Jesus' invitation. And then it shows the fruit of this conversion in his life. That means that the big change in his approach to money isn't in view of getting saved. It's in view of having been saved. Piper puts it this way. John Piper says, Our doing confirms our being. The being comes first. We're made alive. We're forgiven of sin. We're given a new heart. And then the doing not perfectly so, but substantially so, demonstrates, the doing demonstrates our, our being. And I think that's what Jesus means when he says in verse 9, salvation has come to this house. He's not saying salvation now comes to this house because you're willing to give your money away. Salvation has already come to this house, and proof of that is it's transformed your identity And it's transformed your ideals. This man's identity and ideals are bound up in his money. And that's why his money is the focus or the proof of his transformation. For you, it might be something else. When you were converted, it may be that something of the old self died that's different than this guy's. Maybe it was womanizing. Maybe it was drunkenness. Maybe it was swindling, stealing. Maybe it was unabashed materialism. 
Well, whatever it is, it's that idol that we often shed when we come to Christ. Like it says in 1 Thessalonians 1.9, that they turn to God from idols to serve a living and true God. To turn to a means turning somewhat from the idols of the past. In Acts 19, those idols happen to be magic books. In Acts 19, verse 18, it says, Many also of those who believed kept coming and confessing and disclosing their practices. And as they're coming, many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of everyone. And they counted up the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. Remember what Judas betrayed the Lord for? 3,000 pieces of silver. 50,000 pieces of silver was the worth of these magic books that the church in Ephesus put in a fire to say, we're done with this. This isn't us anymore. We, we renounce this. You may not have had magic books as part of your unbelieving past, but there's something here of change, isn't there? Zacchaeus gives far more than what was required, which shows that this is a heart thing, not a law thing. He gave up half of his possessions. Nowhere in the Bible is that commanded. Jesus doesn't even tell him to. Jesus at sometimes does say to some people, hey, why don't you sell all that you have and give it to the poor? Because he's showing them their idolatry of money, the rich man in the previous chapters like that. He goes away sad because he has much stuff and he won't sell it, he won't give it up. But Zacchaeus willingly here gives up half of what he has Where he stole, he says he plans to give back four times as much. The law, the Old Testament law, required 20% more than the payback. Payback, give 20% more for a, I'm sorry. And this guy says, I don't know if he's even thinking about the Old Testament law here and that he's outdoing it. Maybe he's just thinking instinctively, I have enough to pay them back four times as much. And I want to do it. The point isn't specifics, like every new Christian must do a book burning, or every new Christian must do an idol smashing, or every new Christian must give up half their stuff. That's not the point. The point is the massive change of identity and ideal. This man's goals and who he was was wrapped up in his money, and then it was immediately transformed once Jesus came in. The cross changes reality for us. Many of you know Ray Ortland, who was here about a year ago for a weekend of teaching. He has a a blog that I find really helpful. And this last week, he was commenting on 1 Thessalonians 1.9, that you turn from idols to the true and living God. Let me read to you what he wrote. You and I are not integrated, unified, whole persons. Our hearts are multi-divided. There's a boardroom in every heart. Picture it. Big table, leather chairs, coffee, bottled water, whiteboard. A committee sits around the table. There's the social self, the private self, the work self, the sexual self, the recreational self, the religious self, and others. The committee is arguing and debating and voting, constantly agitated and upset. Rarely can they come to a unanimous, wholehearted decision. 
We tell ourselves we're this way because we're so busy with so many responsibilities. The truth is we're just divided, unfocused, hesitant, unfree. That kind of person can accept Jesus in either of two ways. One way is to invite him onto the committee. Give him a vote too. But then he becomes just one more complication. The other way to accept Jesus is to say to him, my life isn't working. Please come in and fire my committee. Every last one of them. I hand myself over to you. Please run my whole life for me. That is not complication. That is salvation. Accepting Jesus is not just adding Jesus. It's also subtracting the idols. Now, I want to dig a little deeper here before we wrap things up. I think there's a theme here in the Bible and exemplified here in Zacchaeus' story that we neglect a little too much in this church and maybe in the circles that we run in these days. What I mean is this. I think we have a right desire to react against the sins of the church's past. So maybe 20 years ago, 30 years ago, it was more common in evangelicalism For there to be sins of legalism, for there to be sins of performance, pride, and even haughty attitudes towards those on the outside, those who are sinners. And we've rightly reacted against that, but perhaps we let the pendulum swing a little too far so that we've neglected a major biblical theme that Christians are different That God not only saves, but he makes new. That he not only forgives, but he gives a new heart. We're born again. We're born from above. And we're to do the works of our Father. Now, in a sense, in Scripture, there's this theme that believers are the same as unbelievers. In a sense, you know, we still sin. We still need a Savior. We still believe the gospel as our only hope. We have nothing in our hands to bring. Only to the cross we cling. It is, in a saving sense, true that our righteous deeds are always going to be filthy rags. You can never begin to commend your righteous deeds to God as a means by which you should be accepted before him. In a sense, we always say, it's all dung, like Paul does in Philippians 3. Or not having a righteousness of my own. In that sense, we're the same. That bumper sticker is true. You know, Christians aren't different, just forgiven. It's true in a sense. But there is so much Bible on how Christians are to be different. How Christians are different. That he's making, according to Titus, a peculiar people. He's making weirdos out of us. We are to be something new, a new creation in Christ. Both are true, that we're the same and we're different. And sometimes when you're witnessing to a friend, you're talking to a friend about what the gospel is, sometimes they need to hear that you're the same. They think Christians are from another planet. And they don't think that we think the same. We relate the same. And in a sense, we do. We need to tell them, no, I have those struggles too. I sometimes have those doubts too. But Jesus is my hope. 
but there are other times when we need to show, demonstrate that we're different. We're not the same. Not, not with rules that are arbitrary and cultural and about clothes or something like that or music styles. No, but about righteousness, yeah, we, we should look different. I, I'm amazed at how much this theme is emphasized in the New Testament writings. So I want to encourage you to go looking for it. Will you write down some references? I'm going to give you seven, which is one for every day of the week. Listen to these references, write them down, and then I want you to go looking in this next week to see how the Bible stresses that we're different, that we're a new creation, that he's doing something new and powerful in you that's in the image of Christ. It's not after the old self that you used to be that is dying. Romans 6 is one of those passages. You're dying to self. He has killed the old self And he's raised us up in newness of life. Ephesians 4 is another one of those passages. We now don't walk in the same manner that we used to. We walk a different walk now. Colossians 3. Christ is risen above. He's in heaven. That's where our thoughts should be. That's where we should be aiming and looking. 1 Thessalonians 4 says that God's will for you is your sanctification and we don't think the same as we used to anymore. James 2 says that real faith works. It does work. The whole book of 1 Peter needs to be a reference here. You can't limit it to one passage, one chapter in 1 Peter. The whole book of 1 Peter. Ryan, read five chapters in one day. Yeah, you'll live. You'll live. And and 1 John's another one, the whole book. 1 John, which says in part that no one who's born of God makes a practice of sin. Here's my point, folks. We don't emphasize that enough. We don't pray for these things enough. We don't rejoice when we see fruit enough, even little bits of fruit, even little grape nuts of fruit. Where we see fruit, we should give glory and praise to God. That's how Paul prays. Paul's praying for fruit in these New Testament letters he's writing. As he describes his prayer, he's praying for fruit and he's rejoicing in fruit. I mean, that's 90% of what he's praying for. It should be a lot more of the percentage of our prayers, I think. Or think about this in 1 John 1 John chapter 3, you just have this phrase floating there in the middle. It seems confusing to us. It says, he can't sin, referring to those who are in Christ. He can't sin. You look at that and you say, what do you mean we can't sin? What do you mean a Christian can't sin? 1 John presupposes there's going to be sin. He says, he who says he doesn't have sin is a liar. We're going to sin. We have sin. What do you mean he can't sin? I think what it means is that it's not an ontological thing. It's impossible. It's an ought. We shouldn't. Did you ever have a teacher growing up? You know, that said something like, we do not talk during reading time. That's not an ontological thing. Like, it's impossible to talk because kids did talk during reading time, right? What he means is, we don't do that in this room. This is a rule here. 
We don't do that here. That's what John's saying. It's not saying Christians never sin. What he's saying is, Christians don't sin. Let's resolve it. We don't sin. It's an ought. It doesn't make any sense to sin. It doesn't mean we won't. But let's tell ourselves, let's preach to ourselves afresh and again and every day. We don't sin. We don't do that here. We're a new creature. He's making us into the image of Christ. This is his plan for us. Jesus died to procure forgiveness and to give us a new heart. He gives us a new heart that we might walk in his ways. So walk. Walk in his ways. I want to wrap this up by showing that picture of Jesus in Zacchaeus' home and in Zacchaeus' life as a takeaway for us. Picture that, Zacchaeus and Jesus there in the home. What does that mean for us? It means, yes, that Christians are to be different, as we've been talking about, but at the same time, doesn't it mean that Christians must engage sinners just like Jesus did? Jesus welcomed sinners. Jesus ate with sinners. Jesus knew sinners. Jesus was willing at the cost of his reputation, to identify with sinners, to share love with them. After all, we can't be holier than Jesus, can we? Do you think there's a kind of holiness that keeps the world out in such a way that you're no longer acting like Jesus and that's holy? No, 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 that's, that's selfish. That's protective and it's misguided. Maybe... Maybe you think the essence of being a Christian is to look for every business that has a fish on the sign and that's where you shop, that's where you'll work. Not Jesus. You know the shepherd's guide? I don't think Jesus would use the shepherd's guide. Let me just say it. I'll go out on a limb here. I don't think Jesus would use that. Because for some, that's a bubble guide. It's how to stay in my bubble. How to make sure I... I'm around other people just like me. And how is the good news spreading? How will the darkness have light in it? How will the salt rub against this meat? That's Jesus' picture, right? We're supposed to be light and salt. And notice how the direction goes with those, both of those. Darkness doesn't overtake light. Light penetrates darkness. Meat doesn't overtake salt. You don't say this is meaty salt. It's salty meat, right? Salt goes into the meat. It influences the meat. We're not to be like the world. We are to be in it. We are to be like Jesus, even when it means that some of the religious crowd will ridicule us or mistake being in the world with being of the world. Some will say, you're of the world because you're in it. That's okay. They did that with Jesus too. Another application from picturing Jesus in Zacchaeus' home is that Jesus comes to save, and he comes to save to commune with us, to be in our lives. He comes to, to share life with us. Isn't that amazing? How are you doing with that? How are you doing in walking with Jesus in every day's ups and downs, the ebb and flow? 
How are you doing in specific times of intimacy with him, communion with him, opening the Bible, praying to him, hearing from him in his word? How are you doing? This is why he came. He came to seek and save the lost. That doesn't mean he came to just put them on hold until when they die, they'll go to heaven. It means starting to walk with him in communion and fellowship. And the third application, I think, from thinking of Zacchaeus' home and Jesus in it is that we eat together, don't we? Jesus doesn't tell us that we're alone. It doesn't tell us here that we're just alone with Jesus. In fact, you see just a little hint of this that Jesus says salvation has come to this house. We don't know exactly what his house looked like and what the makeup of his house was, but we know this, that we're the house of God. He eats and dines with us. He communes with us. Yes, individually and personally, but also corporately. We're in this together. We're in this mission together. We're in this celebration of his forgiveness together. We're in this communion with him together. So pursue these things. Pursue sinners, pursue Jesus, pursue each other. Jesus came for this purpose.